Chapter Five of the Cruise of the Esmeralda. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christopher Weber. The Cruise of the Esmeralda by Harry Collingwood. A Wreck and a Rescue, Part One. At the sound of the second mate's voice, I turned and saw, dead astern, a thin streak of ghostly white drawn horizontally across the curtain of Stygian darkness in that quarter. The line lengthened and broadened with amazing rapidity, and presently a low moaning sound became audible. "'Let run your topsail halyards, fore and aft,' I cried, and the command was instantly followed by the creaking of the parallels as the yards slid down the well-greased topmasts, and the scream of the block sheaves as the falls rapidly overhauled themselves." The moaning sound grew louder as the band of spectral white astern extended and approached, and presently, with a deafening shriek, the hurricane struck us, the line of white foam at the same instant sweeping past us at railway speed. The stroke of the blast was like a blow from something solid, causing the ship to quiver from stem to stern. Then she gathered way, and, with bows buried deep in the milky white water, drove ahead like a frightened sentient thing. I had never witnessed so fierce a squall before in those latitudes. The outfly was indeed as violent as anything I had ever seen in the tropics, and there was nothing for it but to let the ship scud. This she luckily did in splendid style, gathering way quickly, and steering like a little boat. Otherwise, I firmly believe that the first stroke would have dismasted us. The air was so full of scud, water, that, but for the salt taste of it on the lips, one would have thought we were being pursued by a drenching torrent of rain, while the roar and shriek of the wind overhead produced a wild medley of sound that was simply indescribable, and so deafeningly loud that it would have been quite impossible to issue an order in the usual way, had it been ever so necessary, for the simple reason that in the wild turmoil of sound no human voice could have made itself audible. Fortunately, no orders were needed. We had done everything that could be done for the safety of the ship, short of putting her under bare poles, and now all that was left to us was to trust in the mercy of God and the staunchness of our spars and rigging. The first mad fury of the squall lasted for only some five minutes, but after that it still continued to blow so fiercely that we were compelled to scud for fully three hours before we dared venture to round two. Then, having first with great difficulty clued up and furled the foretopsail, we watched our opportunity and, taking advantage of a momentary lull, put the helm over and brought the ship to on the starboard tack. We now, for the first time, had an opportunity of realizing the full strength of the wind which still blew with such violence as to careen the ship gunwale too, even under the small canvas which remained exposed to the blast. It was still intensely dark overhead, but the surface of the sea, highly phosphorescent and scourged into foam by the wind, gave forth a pale lambent light against which the hull of the ship and all her rigging up to the level of the horizon stood out with tolerable distinctness. The swell, meanwhile, was rapidly rising, but there were as yet no waves. 
the wind instantly catching any inequality in the surface of the water and carrying it away to leeward in the form of spindrift. This lasted until daybreak, when the strength of the gale had so far moderated that, despite the fact of the wind having backed to the southward, I ventured to set the foretopsail, closed reef, more, however, for the sake of steadying the ship than for any other advantage that I might expect to get from it. With sunrise the sky cleared, and when my passengers came on deck before breakfast, they had the, to them, novel experience of witnessing a hard gale of wind under a cloudless blue sky, with brilliant sunshine. And, truly, it was a grand and exhilarating scene that met their gaze, for the wind, though it still blew with the force of a whole gale, had so far moderated its fury as to permit the sea to rise, and now the staunch little ship, heeling to her covering board, was gallantly breasting the huge billows of the mid-Atlantic. Each wave a deep blue liquid hill, half as high as our foreyard, crested with a ridge of snow-white foam that, caught up and blown into spray by the gale, produced an endless procession of mimic rainbows past the ship. And, as the crest of each wave struck out weather bow and burst into a drenching shower of silvery spray, a rainbow formed there too, overarching the ship in the wake of the foremast and causing the whole forepart of her to glow and glitter with the loveliest prismatic hues. As the day wore on, the gale continued to moderate somewhat, until by noon its fury had become so far spent that I thought we might venture to once more get the course on the ship, and this was accordingly done when the watch was called. The effect of these large area of sail upon the craft was tremendous, causing her to heel like a yacht under a heavy press of canvas, aye, and to travel like a yacht, too, notwithstanding the heavy sea that was running. But the little beauty behaved superbly, luffing to each comber as it approached, and taking in it a blinding shower of diamond spray. It is true, but still with an easy, buoyant movement such as I had never experienced before. It was the first opportunity that had been afforded me of testing the bark's behavior in heavy weather, and I was more than pleased at the result, for she not only proved to be a superb sea-boat, but she also traveled like a racehorse. By four bells in the afternoon watch, the wind and sea had so far moderated that the mate, whose watch it was then, gave orders to take a small pull upon the topsail halyards, to set the jib, and to haul out the mizzen. When the last of these operations were undertaken, it was found that something had jammed aloft, so that the head of the sail would not haul out along the gaff, and a hand was sent up to see what was foul, and to clear it. The man had accomplished his task, and was just swinging himself off the gaff into the lower rigging, when he was observed to pause and gaze intently to windward. Well, what is the matter, Bill? Do you see anything unusual away there to windward, to set you staring like an owl into an ivy bush? demanded the mate, somewhat impatiently. Yes, sir. There's something away over there, replied the man, pointing with his hand. That looks like a dismasted ship, or a craft on her beam ends. Whatever it is, it is very low in the water, and the sea is breaking very heavily over it. 
The mate said no more, but swung himself into the mizzen rigging and made his way as far aloft as the cross-trees, when he turned and, bracing himself against the masthead, directed his glances towards that part of the horizon indicated by the seamen. Shading his eyes with his hand, he looked steadily for a full minute. Then he said something to the man beside him, when the latter nimbly descended the ratlines to the deck, and, explaining that, Mr. Roberts wants the glass, sir, went to the companion, where the instrument always hung in becks, secured it, and took it aloft to the mate. With its assistance, a still more prolonged examination was made, and when it was at length completed, the two men returned to the deck together. Well, Mr. Roberts, what do you make of it? I inquired, as the mate, having restored the telescope to its accustomed place, joined me near the break of the poop. Well, sir, there is something away there to windward, was the reply, but what it is I couldn't very well make out, and the sea was breaking so heavy over it. Sometimes it has the look of a dismasted and waterlogged ship, and then again it takes the look of a craft on her beam ends, with her yard arm just showing above the water, and once or twice I thought I could catch a glimpse of something like an attempt to make a signal by waving a white cloth or something of the sort. But that may have only been the glancing of the flying foam in the sunshine. How did she bear when you were aloft? I inquired. Broad on her weather beam, answered Roberts. And how far distant do you judge her to be? About a matter of nine miles, I should say. I suppose you'll be taking a look at her, sir? Most certainly, said I. We'll stand on for a quarter of an hour or so, when we will go about, if you think we should then be able to fetch her. Meanwhile, we may as well run our ensign up to the peak, to let the people on board, if there are any, know that we have seen them. Yes, sir, assented Roberts. I should think that in the time we ought to have head reached far enough to fetch her. Shall we get a small drag at the topsail halyards? She will bear another inch or two. Very well, I agreed, and away trundled the sympathetic Roberts, forward to muster the hands. The extra inch or two of topsail that he proposed to give her resolved itself into a liberal two feet of hoist, under which augmented canvas the bark bounded from the sea to sea like a mad thing, completely burying her lee rail with every roll, and causing the gale to fairly howl through her rigging when she recovered herself while a whole acre of dazzling snow-white foam hissed and stormed and roared out from under her lee bow and glanced past the side at what looked like railway speed when she stooped to it under the influence of wind and wave together. The spray, meanwhile, flying over the weather cathead in such a perfect deluge that the whole foredeck was knee-deep in water, while the foresail was drenched halfway up to the yard and even the weather clue of the mainsail came in for a liberal share. To leeward, the shrouds sagged limp and loose at every roll of the ship, while the windward they were as taut as bars, and it was by no means without apprehension that I contemplated the possibility of a lanyard parting, or a bolt drawing under the tremendous strain to which they were subjected. Truly, we were driving the little ship 
in a most reckless fashion, and, but for the presence of that mysterious object to windward, which was undoubtedly the hull of a ship, to which possibly a helpless crew were clinging in deadly peril, I would have shortened sail forthwith. But, for aught we knew, the question of rescue or no rescue might be a matter of minutes, or even seconds, with the distressed ones. We therefore carried on, and took our chance of everything bearing the strain. At the expiration of the allotted half-hour, the hands were called, and, taking the wheel myself and watching for a smooth, we proceeded to about ship. This maneuver was successfully accomplished, though by no means without danger. The ship, while headed to wind, taking a green sea over the bows that literally filled her deck fore and aft, washing some of the men off their feet and compelling everybody to cling for life to whatever they could lay hold of until the open ports partially freed her. Strange to say, beyond the flooding of the forecastle, the deck-house, and the galley, no damage was done, and the next sea that met us happened to be a moderate one. The nimble little craft was round and away upon the other tack before another could come on board us. Once round and fairly on the move again, upon being relieved at the wheel I took the telescope and myself ascended to the foretop upon a visit of inspection. Yes, there the object was, sure enough, about three points on the lee bow, and, as the mate had said, about nine miles distant. I tried to get a peep at her through the telescope, but, even at the moderate elevation of the foretop, the plunge and rolling motion of the ship was so wild that I found it most difficult. I managed, however, to catch an occasional momentary glimpse of her, and from what I then saw, I came to the conclusion that she was a dismasted craft of some five hundred tons or so, floating very deep in the water, with the sea breaking heavily and constantly over her, and that there was a flag of some sort flying from the stump of the mizzen mast, no doubt a signal of distress. She seemed to be a craft with a full poop, the after part of her standing somewhat higher out of the water than the rest of the hull, and once or twice I caught a glimpse of what had the appearance of a small group of people clinging about the stump of the mizzenmast. More than that I could not just then make out, owing, as I have said, to the exasperatingly wild motion aloft, but I had at least ascertained the important fact that, with careful attention to the helm, we should fetch her on our present tack, and with that I was compelled to be for the nonce satisfied. We were evidently nearing her very fast, much faster than I had dared to hope, for upon my return to the deck, after my somewhat protracted investigation, I found that we had risen her from the deck, and all hands were intently watching for a glimpse of her every time that we rose to the crest of a sea, notwithstanding the deluges of spray that flew incessantly in over our weather bow. My passengers were, of course, intensely excited and interested and sympathetic at the idea of a real genuine wreck, and that the possibility of a rescue, even Lady Emily seeming to have utterly forgotten her ailments, in her anxiety to see as much as possible. To their credit, however, be it said, 
they were considerate enough to abstain from tormenting me with ridiculous questions, evidently realizing that I had at that moment more important matters occupying my thoughts. And truly I had, for there was the question of how the people, if any, were to be taken off the wreck. For it must not be forgotten that, hard as we were driving the ship, it was still blowing with the force of quite a strong gale, while the sea was so tremendously heavy that, though a boat, moderately loaded, could undoubtedly live in it if once fairly launched, the task of safely launching her and getting her away from the ship in such weather, and, still more, in getting her alongside, either to ship or to unship people, presented so many difficulties as almost to amount to an impossibility. Fortunately, our boats were all fitted with a most excellent pattern of patent-releasing tackle, but for which I should not have felt justified in risking the lives of my men by asking them to undertake such desperate task. As to the possibility of the wreck being able to lower a boat, the thought presented itself only to be instantly dismissed, for, without the sea breaking so heavily over her as I had seen, it was to be the last degree improbable that any of her boats had so far escaped damage as to be capable of floating, even had they escaped total destruction. True, there was a bare possibility that the strait of those on the deck might not be quite so desperate as it had appeared to me to be, in which case we would stand by them until the weather moderated sufficiently to render the operation of launching a boat a comparatively safe one, but I was very doubtful of this. The wreck had presented all the appearance of being either waterlogged or absolutely in a sinking condition, and in either case there would be but little time to lose, for, even if the craft were only waterlogged, her people were constantly exposed to the danger of being washed overboard. These points, however, would soon be made plain, for we were rapidly approaching the wreck, and the time had arrived for us to commence our preparations. Mr. Roberts, meanwhile, had been forward, talking to the men, and presently he came aft again to the poop, wearing a very gratifying expression of countenance. They are a downright good lot, those lads of ours forward, he began, as he ranged up alongside of me in the wake of the mizzen rigging. I've just been on the forecastle to find out what their ideas are of manning a boat and I had hardly had a chance to mention the matter when every man jack of em gave me to understand that they were ready to do anything you choose ask em, and that I had only to say who I'd have to go in the boat with me. So I picked Joe Murray and Tom Spearman, Little Dick, and Harry Bill, as they call em to the forecastle, and if you're agreeable, sir, I'll take the whaleboat gig. She's as light as a cork, and far and away the prettiest boat for the sea like this. The other gig would hold a man or two more, perhaps, but she's a much heavier boat, and those flat stern craft are not half as safe as a double-ended boat when it comes to running before such a sea as this. I fully agree with you, Mr. Roberts, said I, and I am very much obliged to you for your readiness to take command of the boat. Let two hands lay aloft at once, and see that everything you require is in her, and get her ready for lowering. The rest of the men can set to work to haul up the courses, taking the jib, 
and Brell and the spanker. I shall heave to and drop you close to windward of the wreck as I can with safety, and then shall fill and round to again close under her stern. Very good, sir, was the response, and Robert turned away forthwith to prepare for the work of a rescue. End of A Wreck and a Rescue Part 1